This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Let's go through a couple of cases. Um, uh, these are actual cases out of my practice. Um, the first one is a 58-year-old uh, Filipino gentleman in this case who is in excellent overall health, uh, minimal avoiding problems. We use a scale called the IPSS, which any, any of you who have been urology patients on the call, I'm sure have filled one of these out at some point. Uh, this is quantifying avoiding uh, function, whether you have obstructive symptoms. Uh, he has good erections. The SHIM score is 24 out of 25. Higher numbers here are better, as opposed to the IPSS, where higher numbers indicate more problems. Um, his PSA is relatively low. It's high for his age, but low for having prostate cancer. He's got a normal DRE. And he has a Gleason grade group one, so three plus three cancer, and three out of 12 cores. He's CAPR one, low risk disease. So any thoughts on this? Um, he was actually sent to us to discuss treatment options, but is a pretty clear sort of chip shot candidate for active surveillance. Uh, so question for the panel, does he need further workup before we commit him to active surveillance? Does he need an MRI? Does he need a confirmatory biopsy? Should we do genomic testing? Maybe we'll start with Dr. Washington. Uh, so, oh man, I'm up first. Okay. Well, any of these would be part <laughs> of that discussion. Um, I think after the initial diagnosis, uh, making sure that we have all of his pathology confirmed here, just to make sure our group agrees with Gleason 3.3. Um, I would talk to him about active surveillance, but would bring up the fact that we would need a confirmatory biopsy at around a year afterwards with an MRI prior. And that's just to make sure that not the disease has changed over that time, but we've just identified, make sure again, that we have an accurate assessment of the disease present in its prostate as we continue with um, uh, active surveillance. I would talk to him about genomic testing of the biopsy that we have currently as a way to help us, again, just better estimate his risk. And that would be a discussion of, should we do it on the biopsy that he had previously, give us kind of an upfront assessment of risk, and then should we do it on his confirmatory biopsy, assuming that it also shows Gleason 3. But happy right. to hear what my boss has said. <laughs> Other thoughts about that? Speaking of the boss, uh, Dr. Carroll, any thoughts on genomic testing? Should he get genomic test? And, and would you do it now or would you wait as uh, as Sam suggested perhaps for the confirmatory? Yeah, I, I just, just a note to, to the audience here is that this patient nowadays, if they were seen at UCSF, they would have not have gone to an immediate biopsy. Uh, again, this issue of overdetection can be minimized by using MRI uh, serum or urine test. So this patient should have gotten the MRI before biopsy. And if the MRI were negative, PSA density low, he may not have even needed the biopsy done. But now that right. you've done the biopsy, I would get an MRI to see whether or not they miss clinically significant disease. If the MRI is favorable, genomic testing would likely not add to his um, uh, risk assessment. Again, so for low-risk patients based on MRI, genomic testing tends to be very tends to be low. So he would be a candidate for uh, surveillance. I want to point out that younger men actually have a lower rate of upgrading compared to older patients. It's totally counterintuitive to what most people think. Younger patients actually gen generally have more favorable cancer. So I would do the MRI if favorable. We would be low risk. And I would do uh, surveillance. Would, would anyone on the panel not do a confirmatory biopsy? This is actually a little bit controversial around the world. I think it's fairly standard for our practice at UCSF, but there are definitely lots of centers that do not necessarily support it. Um, 
Any counter any countering views on the panel? So, man, I, okay. I think it's reasonable. It's a reasonable thought. Uh, so, I would probably, if the MRI was completely normal, low PSA yep. density, uh, his risk uh, of clinically significant disease is low. Um, yep. And uh, I would have a discussion with him as to whether or not he wanted to proceed with biopsy or not to minimize that already low risk. Um, so I, I think some patients will get the biopsy. We generally at least w want one confirmatory biopsy in two years, but I think I've had patients uh, refuse it. And as long as the MRI is done in a high quality center, completely negative PSA density low, then you're probably not likely to miss clinically significant cancer. And it's really important to point out that you know the MRI can help us identify the cancers, but it also lets us determine the PSA density. And there was actually a nice study by one of our chief residents just uh, two years ago, looking at the accuracy of MRI um, in exactly this setting. And it turns out if the PSA density is high, then the accuracy of the MR for ruling out cancer uh, falls to about 60%. So if the PSA density is high, at least my practice, I would I would tend to do a confirmatory biopsy, even if the MR doesn't show a lesion, uh, for that confirmatory. Now, downstream, once we've got a couple biopsies under our belt and we have better handle on how the cancer is performing over time, um, I think the reliability of the MR tends to go up. Uh, so we did, in fact, get an... Uh, sorry, before we go on to what happened with this patient. So any different thoughts if this patient had additional risk factors? So what if he were African-American or Black? Um, Sam, we'll start with you since you gave the disparity lecture. I wouldn't necessarily uh, consign or assign him to surgery right off the bat. I'd have kind of the same discussion, yeah. uh, couching yeah. it in the fact yeah. that, you know, outside of UCSF, where we've looked at our outcomes and we don't see a difference by race, yeah. you know, the impact of uh, treatment in that care pathway, but I would treat him as other patients. You showed, you showed that one nice study. There, there have been several trying to look at this question of whether surveillance outcomes are different by race. And it seems like the more recent studies and the better done studies do not show a difference. But there have been some studies over the years that that have, you know, Johns Hopkins kind of prominently among them. And it might be a bit of an open question. I am, I agree with you completely. I think our all of our practice here would be to offer surveillance, but but maybe to do surveillance a little bit more carefully. And I would definitely push confirmatory biopsy in the presence of risk factors. Now, what if it's the same man whose father actually died of prostate cancer? Does this change the conversation? And what if he had a BRCA mutation? Okay, Is there anyone so that take this man straight to surgery or radiation? Okay, so, so if his father died of prostate cancer, I think his risk of having cancer is higher. I'd find out whether or not there was someone else in family history who died and what, at what age. I think the, the issue for the BRCA2 mutations is an issue for surveillance. That's what's controversial. So BRCA2 mutations clearly predict for the risk of upgrading, the hazard ratio about two. I have to speak of this in, in, in uh, uh, at the SIU meeting uh, shortly. So I think for a BRCA mutation, you need to discuss risks and benefits with the patient. You need to, uh, uh, I think that's a patient where you wanna do, be sure they have an MRI, be sure they've had a very good MRI targeted biopsy, and consider genomic profiling. But I think a patient's gotta decide, even though they're increased risk, and again, BRCA2 mutations are associated with a higher risk of lethal disease. Now, generally, again, these are not well-performed studies in the active surveillance population. These mutations are only seen in about 2% of men with localized disease. Uh, but I think the BRCA2 mutations give me some, some cause, some pause when I, when I start talking about surveillance 
uh, uh, in men. That that that's we have to have a very, I think a very careful discussion. I would say one thing to emphasize here too is that active surveillance does not mean we're never going to treat. It means uh, we are not necessarily going to treat right now. And and you know one common discussion is that you know the likelihood is that you will need something done at some point. You know the question it's a question of when we treat rather than if we treat. But you know if it's a 58 year old with a couple quarters of three three, I would much rather be treated at 63 or 68 than than 58. And as long as you know there's a good understanding of the low risk of cancer progression in the intern, then surveillance is at least an appropriate short term uh, uh, surveillance uh, short term alternative. So this gentleman did opt for surveillance. Um, he actually declined pretty vigorously um, the confirmatory biopsy. His PSA drifted up, not uh, all that rapidly, but did drift up. And in 12 months, PSA had risen a little further, and he finally underwent an MRI and biopsy here. Um, so this is his MRI on the left and his ultrasound in my practice on the right. Um, and you can see, and one, one point I want to emphasize here for all the dis discussion about MRI, it's a wonderful adjunct tool, um, but transrectal ultrasound, even with a conventional machine, this is not the micro ultrasound, is still an excellent diagnostic tool. Um, How mentioned Ketsu Shinohara, who has trained us all to do this really, really well. And the fact is the majority of the Pirates 4 and 5 lesions on MRI, especially the posterior lesions, we can see crystal clear on the ultrasound. So it looks very similar on T2 and diffusion weighted imaging on our multi-parametric MR as it does on ultrasound. In fact, it was the ultrasound where um, I thought there might be a little bit of distortion of the capsule here, suggestive of possible extracapsular disease, which, which was not called on the MR. Uh, so we did a repeat biopsy and found now with targeting Gleason 3 plus 4, so grade group 2 in both of the MRI targeted cores, only one of the systematic cores, 30% of the cancer was pattern four, and this was simple cribriform, so not expansile, uh, sort of the, the middle ground aggressiveness in terms of the pattern. And he had a little bit of Gleason 3.3 uh, elsewhere in the prostate. So um, just to emphasize this point, you know, Gleason 3 plus fours are often lumped together, and this is a major limitation of the NCCN risk classification that I mentioned briefly and Dr. Muhammad went over. You know, these are two other sample patients, both of whom have 3 plus 4 disease, and both of whom come in under so-called favorable intermediate under the NCCN. But if we use a more granular risk stratification system, we're going to see pretty clearly that the guy on the right has a more aggressive cancer than the patient on the left. And we can get more granular by looking at things like PSA density and, again, this, this cribriform subtype. Um, so... Um, this gentleman here did go on to genomic testing. We found a decipher score came back at 0 0.67. This is on a scale from zero to one. So this gets him into the higher end of risk. Now, again, this is a prediction five to 10 years down the road. Um, and we're not quite at the point of knowing exactly what to do with the decipher scores at the point of care, um, but it does weigh on the discussion. So this is our summary. We now have a three plus four um, in a couple of cores. There's a very clear lesion on both MR and truss. He's got minimal three plus three disease elsewhere, and he's got a slightly concerning decipher. So do we continue to offer him surveillance? Is he a good candidate for focal therapy? Or should he go on to prostatectomy or, or radiation by, by some form? So let's start actually at how, what do you think about his candidacy for focal therapy? <clears throat> yeah, this, this is a good case, Matt. So, um, 
Yeah. The, the I think based on the genomic test, you know, it's high risk. I'm worried if we offer high uh, cryo or high food or focal or any other focal, you may develop cancer outside of the treatment zone in the future. So we will need some other form of treatment in the future, uh, very high, high likely. And then uh, on that ultrasound, you know, with that uh, potentially extra capsule extension. I worry a little bit about uh, offering high food. Uh, we may miss some cancer there at the edge where it's indeed into the capsule. Because during ablation, we, do, we would not ablate uh, anything outside the capsule. So that would have a recurrence. So I don't think he's an ideal candidate for uh, for focus. I, I, I would not offer it to him. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, Osama, thoughts about radiation options for him? I think he's an excellent candidate for radiation therapy, assuming he does not have any contraindications, such as, as I said, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, prior radiation, or that, uh, and it's, I think his IPSS score, which is a urinary baseline urinary function is good. So any of these radiation options are actually excellent. Permanent seeds or with LDR or temporary seeds with HDR or stereotactic radiation with cy uh, cyber SBRT or LINAC-based <clears throat> SBRT or conventional treatments, like 44 treatments or 25 treatments, all are good options. We usually discuss these options. Most of the time in UCSF, we do not prescribe uh, uh, conventional fractionation for patients, like the 44 treatments for patients like this, because it's just inconvenient. And we have data that SBRT or seed radiation is, is equivalent. Now, uh, the question about SBRT versus uh, 20 so five fraction versus 20 treatments some practitioners do still say that you know uh, there is not enough data for SBRT but I think with the publication of the a trial recent trial from the UK called base B with hundreds of patients showing very good results I think SBRT is going to become the, the standard of care for patients with these disease characteristics uh, to me personally I, I discuss mostly about when the, when patients like this come to me I mostly talk about the convenience of treatment so I usually offer either HDR or SBRT for these patients and patients would select either. Now, there is a question with the cipher being 0.62. It's very important to note that the cipher score is a continuous score. Although the cipher score of 0.62 lumps patients into the high-risk decipher category, but 0.62 is not the same as 0.99. So there have been very limited studies on, on the use of decipher. Actually, Dr. Fang, who's here on the, who, who will talk later, he actually is clinical trial on the use of decipher for um, uh, to, to, to decide on which treatment. But there's some studies that patients with high-risk decipher above 0 0.62 may, uh, may have slightly increased chance of uh, cancer spreading or cancer recurrence. While this is very controversial, I usually discuss with my patients who have high-risk decipher possibly adding four months short-term duration of hormone therapy. Now, I would be more, uh, more convinced to offer it for patients whose decipher is 0 0.95 versus 0 0.62, but this is a point of consideration. There is no data for it, but this is something we've showed the patient the date, the what we know, and they and we make we help them with this to get into a decision together. All right. Would anyone feel comfortable continuing to offer him surveillance? This is Peter. I, I think. Yeah. 
I think the patient gets to decide what they want to do and all these options are options for them. But I think this patient is headed for treatment. Uh, he's 59 years old. Uh, I, I want to say that if I ever have radiation, I'm going to have Dr. Mohammed do it. But I think at 59, this patient's got a significant cancer. And I think if it were me at 59, I would, and maybe at, my, at, at 71, I would have my prostate out. I, I worry a little bit about the long-term durability of radiation yeah. and radiation side effects. This patient's got a long life expectancy. Yeah. I think if he was mid-70s or late-60s, not a big deal, but I worry a little bit that this is a patient where selection of initial treatment could be very important as we measure it 20 years from now. All right. In the interest of time, let's move on to the second case, uh, which we'll go through briefly. This is an older gentleman, 72, in relatively good health, Caucasian man, uh, who comes in for a second opinion. He's been diagnosed with a grade group two, three plus four, in two out of 12 cores. His PSA is, is higher, uh, nearly 15, and he does have some substantial uh, BPH symptoms with an IPSS of 27 out of 35, which puts him into the severe uh, obstructive symptoms category. This is despite taking taking uh, Tamsulosin or Flomax. He does have a degree of erectile dysfunction. He's got a shim of 20 out of, out of 25 and has a reasonably good response to Cialis. So he comes in with a CAPR score of four, consistent with intermediate risk disease. We got a multiparametric MR on him. And this one shows an anterior lesion, and pretty large and quite obvious on both the T2 and the diffusion-weighted imaging here. Um, this is a fairly common location for cancer to be undersampled because the biopsies that we do uh, being transrectal come from this approach here from the rectum into the prostate. So it is, it's relatively easy to miss an anterior tumor. So we did a confirmatory biopsy on him uh, with guidance from this MRI and found a gleason grade group three. So four plus three in six out of 16 cores, we did find both expansile cribriform and intraductal carcinoma components. So these are the higher end of the risk within the pattern four category and up to 70% of the cancer is pattern four. So the first question is, does he need staging evaluation? And if so, uh, what do we get? Is there any role for bone scan and CT in contemporary practice? Do we go straight to PSMA PET? We'll open that one up for anybody's thoughts. Sure. I, I, I've, um, I would go straight to a PSMA PET scan to, you know, decrease the, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would just get straight to the PSMA because he has a high risk feature, including the introductor and high PSA. So I would make sure we accurately stage him before we offer therapy. Anybody feel different when they get a bone scan? Yeah. No, bone, bone scans are obsolete in my mind at this point for this yeah. patient. Uh, Matt, I just want to point out that for that introductal carcinoma, this patient's a candidate for germline testing as well. Yeah, and that's a great point. And this has been raised, I think, a couple of times already, that our, our indications for germline testing are expanding every year. There's a whole MCCN guideline on this. Um, and yeah, his risk features, the, the fact of the introductal, um, he is a candidate where he probably would not have been a few years ago. Um, you know, germline testing used to be reserved for people with either extensive family histories or metastatic disease, but we are testing more and more uh, patients these days. And it's actually getting easier logistically for us to do this um, at UCSF specifically. All right, so he did go on to get a PSMA PET, which turned out to be negative, 
Um, so to summarize, we now have a, a patient with a four plus three, and he's a T2A by MRI. And this is a, a point of some confusion, even for urologists. You know, he's technically still a T1C because he does not have a palpable tumor. And for better or worse, the staging guidelines um, still really focus on the digital rectal exam, not imaging in terms of assigning stage, which many of us think is a little bit archaic, but that is nonetheless the way the staging system is run. Uh, so he's got this PSA of 14.8, comes in with a CAPRA of 7 uh, and a negative PSMA. So what are his options? If we're going to do a prostatectomy with the negative PSMA, do we do a no dissection? I'm going to send that one to Dr. Carroll. Uh, and then if we do radiation, there's a number of questions. Um, does he need hormonal therapy? Um, does he need a boost to the prostate in addition to pelvic radiation therapy? And what do we do about his obstructive symptoms? And is he a candidate for focal? And I think we know the answer to this one, but um, let's start with the surgical question. So who would do no dissection? We, we may have some uh, different opinions on the call, actually, about this one. So uh, I can tell you I would, but but uh, Peter. So I, I think this is what we're, the paradigm for no dissection is changing, and we need better technology to detect the nodes that are positive. And I think there could be one that could be, I, I think what we'll be doing until we get intraoperative imaging, uh, we may not do the no dissection, do the prostate. And then if they fail, their ability to get salvage dissection or salvage radiation may be better if you didn't do the no dissection. And no dissection is, uh, uh, does have side effects, which are not insignificant. So, uh, and, and, you know, we found that, that whether you did a limited versus an extensive had no impact on outcomes. We randomized trial at Memorial. UCSF shows that the number of nodes we removed didn't impact outcome. This is work that Sam authored. So I think we have to be cautious about this. And I think if he was T2 by all other features, uh, I didn't have uh, other PSMA PET negative. I talked to the patient about it, uh, but I I'm not sure it would be helpful. Sam, any thoughts? I think I would have a discussion with the patient, definitely about the diagnostic versus therapeutic components of this or benefit of the lymph node dissection, um, as Dr. Carroll mentioned. Our work looking at this, you know, showed that um, the therapeutic benefit may be limited. So especially with the PSMA PET being negative, that gives a stronger argument to potentially not doing a lymph node dissection, but it would be an in-depth discussion with the patient. And just to be clear for the listeners, the, the, the reason that it's not a slam dunk that we don't do the node dissection is that the PSMA PET can still underappreciate microscopic disease. And some of the work that Tom Hope did here, I'm sure he'll review this afternoon, um, about 20 to 30% of patients with high-risk disease and a negative PSMA PET can have microscopic disease, you know, just a few cells. Um, you know, what happens with these, we don't know. We don't know the clinical implication of them. You know, PSMA PET has really changed a lot of what we thought we knew, kind of maybe that we suspected about high-risk prostate cancer. You know, many of the cancers that would have been negative by CT and bone scan, we are now finding these metastatic disease uh, uh, loci. And we're now just, just starting to figure out what to actually do with them. All right. So Osama, if he is going to get radiation therapy, does he need hormones? Does he need long-term hormones? I know there were some questions in the Q&A earlier. Why do we really have to give the duration that we often give? Um, are you going to treat the nodes? Would you boost the prostate? And what would you tell him about his obstructive symptoms? 
Uh, honestly, someone who presents with an IPSS score of 27 on Flomax, I actually would not be too excited to do radiation at all. I think this patient will struggle with radiation. It's going to be difficult for the patient to even go through the radiation. If they are already at baseline, wake up like five, six times, their stream is weak, they're like they are have lots of urgency and maybe some leakage with urgency, just giving them radiation and will we'll further aggravate the symptoms. Now, if the symptoms would um, would get better with Flomax um, from 27 to 15, 16, 17, 18, that's a different question. But because of his median lobe, I suspect that he has a structural obstruction that Flomax cannot help much with. Now, uh, you know, some, some sometimes a patient would come in and they want to do radiation or their age or their other comorbidities will preclude them from getting surgery. In this time, we uh, in these cases, we would discuss with you know, with with Matt, uh, with the Matt or Peter, with uh, maybe we could do TURP, which is a resection of the section of the prostate going into the pros into the bladder. We can remove it, and we can wait two to three months to wait for the tissue to heal, and then we would offer radiation. The data on the toxicity or the side effects of radiation and patients who had prior TURP is a little bit conflicting. Some data showed a little bit increase in toxicity. Some data sh uh, showed that radiation is okay, but even if we are going to offer radiation, it has to be the gentle radiation, the 20 or higher treatments. We cannot offer SBRT to patients who have a TURP defect. Now, finally, do they need hormonal therapy? Yes, patients with four plus three disease, uh, and six of 16 cores, intraductal carcinoma would benefit from hormonal therapy. And that hormonal therapy is going to be four to six months. Now, prostate boost or no prostate boost, if the patient have a TERP defect, definitely no prostate boost. If the patient, let's forget about their urinary symptoms, let's say there's no urinary symptoms, good urinary symptoms, prostate boost could be considered actually in these patients because the studies did show a significant improvement in reduction in PSA recurrences. And the, the last question is, do we irradiate the nodes in this patient or not? That's also a border. This is definitely a borderline case. There is no strong indication for lymph node irradi irradiation, but if it's done, it's not wrong as well. And I would just emphasize one point that if we are going to do a TERP, it definitely should come before the radiation therapy, not after. Patients that get radiation and remain in retention or have worsened problems and then go on to TERP typically have very prolonged healing and, and lots of problems. Um, this is, I would say, a scenario where you know surgery first is often the right way to go simply because of the obstructive symptoms, because we can kill two birds with one stone, as it were, and deal with the BPH concurrent with the uh, with the prostate cancer. And there are certainly cases where men wind up with better voiding function at the end of the day, six months down the road than they started with. Um, but I would also say that a man like this going for surgery has a pretty substantial likelihood of needing post-surgical radiation therapy. Um, and I would emphasize that point too about multimodal therapy. There were questions in the Q&A earlier about salvage prostatectomy, doing surgery after radiation therapy. You know, it's possible, but it's much more difficult than doing surgery followed by radiation therapy. Um, and, you know, for higher risk cases, especially those that are even higher risk than, than the one we're talking about here, you know, that is really an evolving paradigm that the, the right answer may well be all of the above. Um, in which case, again, um, you know, surgery followed by radiation is easier than radiation followed by surgery. 
And there's a question here about would urinary symptoms improve with pre-radiation ADT? It's a great question. Um, one of uh, Dr. Muhammad's colleagues is a big advocate for this and believes that patients will unobstruct on ADT. I think it's a, a mixed bag in reality. I think there are some, especially if, if this was rapid onset of obstructive symptoms, sometimes it's actually the cancer causing the obstruction. The vast majority of the time it's not, it's BPH in a patient who also has cancer. But in a case like this, if his symptoms had come on over a period of months rather than years, you know, the tumor is sitting next to the urethra, you know, maybe it really is the cancer responsible for the obstruction. So if he goes on pre-radiation hormonal therapy and the symptoms get a lot better, then he may actually do quite well with radiation therapy. But patients that go on hormones and are still teetering on the edge of retention um, are not going to do great with radiation unless they've had an, a, a, some sort of outlet procedure first. Um, I think in the interest of time, we should probably wrap up. Um, just to make one final point, um, I, I recently was on a panel with, um, with the Prostate Cancer Foundation talking about treatment, decision-making, and regret. So I'm just going to throw out to the panel yeah. the one question, any guidance on how either of these men should actually make their decision? You know, we have this whole discussion, and then I'm sure you all get the question as often as I do, you know, that's great. So what, what should I do? Or what would you do if you were me? So any thoughts or comments on how to guide actual decision-making once all the outcome, once all the options have been presented? Uh, Matt, this is Peter. I, I've, I've been asked this question thousands and thousands of times. I think it's a little bit easier at UCSF because here at UCSF, people understand all their options, all their options. So you're not just seeing a surgeon, you're seeing a surgeon, you're seeing a radiation therapist, you're frequently seeing a medical oncologist. We have all the treatment options available to men. And I tell men they make treatment decisions based on three criteria. One is the grade and extent of disease. Here at UCSF, we do a very good job of that imaging, genomics, PSMA PET. Two, the age and health of the patient. How you treat someone with a five-year life expectancy different than a 10, 15, or 30-year life expectancy. And lastly, and just as importantly, is their own patient preferences. So when you give patients good information, they'll gravitate to a decision based on their own personal preferences. And I tell them that's the decision they should, should make. Uh, I think the, the problem is too many men are not given good, uh, good information. I think when they're good information, they make very good decisions. There's much less decisional regret. So let me emphasize that point. And, and I, I could not agree more. And this, I agree, is something we do uniquely well at UCSF is providing information. I will say briefly, and I, we've already heard about this from some of the talks there, there's there's actually very little controversy left about what the treatments do in terms of quality of life. Surgery causes a higher, is associated with a higher risk of incontinence, uh, radiation, higher risk of the irritation symptoms that you've already heard about. They can both affect sexual function, um, but you need to go into treatment warned, uh, forewarned with accurate information. So this is a study published recently, actually, involving data from SEER, which is the National Registry, as well as data from the Capture Registry that I mentioned um, the uh, the registry that we've run out of UCSF for many years, uh, looking at men treated in community practice. And it's looking at predictors of regret. So a man asked five years after treatment, would you have done something differently if you had to do it all over again? And it's obviously a bad outcome for us. You know, we, we don't want to hear that, you know, yes, I wish I'd done something different. You know, I wish I'd made a different decision. And um, you know, that's obviously, it's it's the final common path in a way of, of all the non-cancer uh, impacts of, of treatment. And in this plot here, you know, boxes further to the right are more regret. And by far the two biggest drivers here 
um, our perception of treatment effectiveness compared with expectations and perception of treatment adverse effects compared with expectations. And this is more important than any of the actual functional outcomes. This is incontinence, sexual function, emotional well-being, et cetera. None of these actually drove regret. What drove patients to say, I wish I had done something different, was the disconnect between expectations and outcomes. You can have two men that are both wearing you know, one pad a day, a year, or even five years after treatment. It, you know, if one man was expecting that this was an outcome, he may be perfectly okay with that. If another man was promised he would be dry at two months, he's going to be really pissed off and will very likely uh, be in this uh, in this regret category. We've had a number of questions about proton therapy in the Q and A during the day. You know, the the advertising for proton therapy is ground zero for this. Um, you know, the the ads that come out of some of the centers around California offering proton therapy make it seem like this is guaranteed to cure the cancer with no side effects. And we've all seen the catastrophes from proton therapy. So you need to go into whatever treatment it is with open eyes and realistic expectation. Um, and I would also emphasize the point too, that when you do have long-term side effects, which some men do, no matter how well the treatments are given, we can manage those side effects. There's going to be talks this afternoon from some of our colleagues in reconstructive urology um, about this exact issue of undermanagement. We meet men you know, 10 years out from surgery who have been wearing three pads a day ever since, these are problems we can fix. We can intervene to help sexual function get going again. You should not be suffering in silence, whether your treatment was at UCSF or somewhere else. Uh, we can often manage most of the side effects that, that we see. Um, so I would just say, make sure you have an honest conversation with your providers about local outcomes. If you're not actually coming to UCSF for treatment, ask very specific questions about local uh, cancer cure rates, quality of life outcomes. And I would say one final comment in terms of high-risk disease, the fact that the cancer came back does not necessarily mean the treatment failed. High-risk cancers often require multiple treatments. And the fact that the PSA starts going up again does not mean that you did not realize a benefit from that treatment. In fact, we have pretty reasonable evidence that for high-risk disease, we might be setting back the clock by years in terms of the cancer progression. So even if the cancer does come back, we have bought you know, months or or even years of survival. And as long as the quality of life is good, this is a good trade-off. Uh, so with that, I'll just ask if there's any final comments from uh, anyone, any of my co-panelists. I was just going to emphasize for decision-making that uh, also friends, family, support groups that are offered through UCSF or come partner with UCSF or another ways for patients to get information about what the treatments look like, particularly when they're making decisions on treatment or management strategies making sure that they have information and not feeling pressured to make a split decision in the moment is key to uh, help make sure that they have a full informed uh, decision. Outstanding point. All right. I think we will wrap up this session. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com. 